0: Hi and good morning. I'm one of the pastors here at FAC. My name is James and I'm glad you're with us in this big room and welcome to everybody joining online as well. Thank you for being here. My wife Jill and I are back from a wonderful time visiting some of our family in the Netherlands and meeting our new grandson. He's called James just like me. But things get a little confusing when there's two people with the same name in the house. People would say things like, James, you're so beautiful, you're just gorgeous, you're absolutely perfect, and I'm thinking, I never knew you felt that way about me, but thank you for the compliments. Our summer teaching series called Left Unread is based on the reality that sometimes when you text somebody, you know the text has been sent, you can tell it's been received, and if you get the two blue ticks, you know it's been read as well, but it's left like that. Nothing happens. Nothing changes, and nobody replies, nothing goes on. It's frustrating, although I'm learning to try and deal with my frustrations because I probably do it an awful lot to people too. And this summer, as we go through these 13 letters in the New Testament, the second half of our Bible, that were written by Paul, one of those earliest followers of Jesus who planted and started many of these churches that he wrote to, he writes to them. But what happens? What does he do? They do? Paul was a missionary explorer. He'd first encountered Jesus on his way to a city called Damascus. It changed his life, and he felt both called and compelled to take the story of Jesus with him everywhere he went. He felt Jesus calling him to move further west beyond the traditional lands where people had practiced faith in God, in Israel, in Judea, Samaria, Galilee, people moving in towards Syria. He was heading off to what we would call now Turkey or Greece, sharing the story of Jesus. And some of these churches that he founded were in a region of Turkey called Galatia. We don't know how they responded, but we can know how we respond. That's something we can know. And the honest truth is that many of us, if we've read the letter, we just leave it on read. No reply, no response, no nothing. We've read the words in the Bible but we've never responded to them in any meaningful way. Maybe we're not even sure how we should respond. What does this mean for me? What am I supposed to do now that I've read the letter? What relevance does this have to the world that I'm living in right now? What should I say? Perhaps that's why we just leave it unread. We're not sure. And so my prayer today is that all of us can learn how to respond to Paul's letter to this church the letter to the Galatians. The order of Paul's letter in your Bible is not overly complicated. They're not in chronological order. They're simply biggest to shortest. It starts with Romans, which is really big, and it ends with Philemon, which is half a page, and they're just spread out like that today. And this letter, Galatians, is one of the very earliest that was written, maybe first or second. First Thessalonians is probably the earliest one, but it's certainly written in a very different style to all his other letters. It's abrupt, There's no saying thank you to them. He's angry. He's frustrated. And he's outspoken. Paul says things like this. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Or he'll say this. I wish that those who unsettle you would castrate themselves. Charming. (laughs) So why is he so riled up? What's he so upset about? What is he trying to accomplish here? And what difference would any of this make to us living in Calgary in 2023? It's obvious something has gone wrong with these churches. Somebody's phoned up and said, hey, Jerusalem, we have a problem. Something's not working. And since he can't actually be there, he's writing a letter to them, hoping to try and straighten things out a little bit, addressing the situation that they find themselves in so that they can make a course correction. And here's the scoop. There were a number of things going sideways in this little church. There was this question of authority. Who should we believe? What should should we believe? There was a question of salvation. How do we get right with God? And there was a question of holiness. What does it mean to build and live a life that honors God? We'll start with authority. Who and what should we believe? That's just as relevant today as it was then. Maybe even more so. In the time Paul was writing, this was really a question that was kind of theological or spiritual or religious about belief. The world we live in, our day of digital and global communication, we're not sure you can believe anything that anybody says, not even from a newscaster. We're not certain. We have facts and we have alternative facts. What are you supposed to believe? What is truth? And it seems like in their time, a group of conservative Jewish background Christians had become upset because the good news of Jesus had been traveling to non-Jewish communities, what they in their time called Gentiles. These people were coming to know Jesus. Peter had gone to the house of a Roman centurion called Cornelius in the book of Acts, chapters 10 and 11, and Cornelius and many of his family were following Jesus. And then you hear the story of Paul who wrote the letter. He begins journeying around, going to places that were not Jewish either, and telling people about Jesus, Acts 13 onwards. People were, they were bothered about this sort of thing. They weren't sure what should be done because when you think about it, almost everybody at this point in time who was a follower of Jesus was Jewish. Many of them simply living in Jerusalem or up in Galilee, that was it. They had no idea what to do with these people. You see, they thought, Christian faith following Jesus was like a subset of the Jewish faith groups. And if you know your Bible a little bit, you had your Pharisees and Sadducees. If you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were written by probably the Essenes. And now here's another group, the Christians, you all fit in and figure your own way out. But these Judaizers, people who are trying to change things, or as Paul would call them, agitators, some of the churches that they visited, they began saying to them, look, this is really great, you're following Jesus, but you've got it all in the wrong order. You really ought to become Jewish first, and then you can become a follower of Jesus. You can maybe think of it like this, you want to collect points to travel, so you've got to enroll in the program, you get your card, step one. Step two, you start spending money, and you collect your points. That's kind of what's going on here. Step one, you need to become Jewish. Step two, you can start following Jesus, and everything's going to go well. And Paul learned that many people in this little church were choosing to follow this idea. And you see, for Paul, what's at stake here is not just a few religious practices, as though that matters very much. It's not even really which kind of people group or religious sect you identify with. He's not really worried about that either. What he is concerned about is the very nature of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, he says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what we have proclaimed to you, let that one be accursed." That's strong words. They are strong words. You can feel the intensity. It's like one of those moments when everybody's just staring at the floor. Don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact. They'll make me say something. What are we supposed to do with these words? Already in chapter 1, the very first verse, Paul claims authority. Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. An apostle, a sent one. In this case, sent by God to deliver a message. And his message is about Jesus, crucified and raised from the dead. His message is powerful, not because Paul was. He certainly wasn't. But because the God whom he served, the God who sent him, is indeed powerful. And he is sent by God. And so as we read chapter 1, you'll get a little bit of an autobiography of Paul. Last weekend here in the Deerfruit campus, Pastor Grant was teaching us about another biography of Paul that you could read in 2 Corinthians of all the challenging and crazy circumstances of his life. He called it the anti-resume, the story of everything that went wrong for him, and yet somehow God was at work. And in this instance, Paul talks in his story in chapter 1 about how he came to believe in Jesus. There he was, persecuting the church violently even, proud of his Jewish heritage when he meets Jesus in his journey towards Damascus and his world is blown apart. Everything has changed. His life was completely changed. His call, his mission, his message were given directly to him in that moment by divine revelation. And it's not that he was alone in his faith journey. As we read into chapter 2, you'll hear the story of him meeting James and John, or James and Peter rather, some of these earliest followers of Jesus when he went to Jerusalem. He'll tell of another meeting with James and Peter and John, and his point is that Jesus has changed his life, and Jesus has called him to be an apostle, and Jesus has given him this message of the good news, and the other leaders of the beginnings of the church in Jerusalem knew this, they were aware of it. And they accepted him as their equal. So why should the people in this little church trust Paul? Because Jesus had turned his life around. Because instead of killing the followers of Jesus, he became one of them. Because God himself gave him this gospel message. Because his life has been animated by resurrection power. Because the leaders in Jerusalem acknowledged his authority as an apostle. Because of Jesus. And that's really chapters 1 and 2. And it's all about Jesus. And now Paul comes to his central theme, the question of salvation. How do we get right with God? Maybe a question you've thought of. It may be a question you've never wondered about. Why would God be worried about me? But at the end of the day, we all face a reality. What do I do about this situation between me and God, my life and God's life? What's up? These so-called agitators, they accepted that Jesus was the Son of God, They accepted that he was the promised Messiah. They even believed that he was the Savior. He's the one who brings new life, who brings forgiveness of sins, who can reanimate and change everything about us. Nobody was disputing any of that. But they also believed you had to become Jewish first of all. Sometimes people would think of this as a kind of a legalism. Essentially, there are rules to be obeyed, laws to be kept. In this case, the rules are the laws of the Torah, the first five books of our Bible. And in there, God has plenty to say about all sorts of things. And there's this sense of we need to be able to do these things to get it right. If we're going to be faithful, we need to do this stuff. We trust Jesus, and we do these things too. Other people see this all as a little bit more kind of like nationalism or imperialism. In other words, there are some boundary lines about who's in and who's out. The line is here. If you're over here, you live this sort of way. If you're over there, then you can choose to live a different sort of way. There's a boundary marker that delineates who's in and who's out. And in this case, the in crowd were people who were practicing Jewish faith. One of the examples here in Galatians, as Paul starts writing, is about hospitality and food. Actually, in chapter 2, Paul starts writing about this, and he highlights how the apostle Peter kept changing his mind about who he could have lunch with. You read this in chapter two, verse 11. When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, that's in Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles, the foreigners, people like us. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. He was a little worried. People were noticing what he was doing. It seems odd to us because when we think of food, we just think of our diet. But when they thought of food, they thought of piety. What you ate and who you ate it with really mattered to these people. There's another example that Paul gives in Galatians about circumcision. It was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham and of God's covenant with his descendants, the people of Israel. You can read the story, if you'd like, in Genesis chapter 17. But this was a clear boundary marker who was in and who was out. But in each instance, you really need to be aware of something. This is all about addition by subtraction. Addition by subtraction. Here's what I mean. Every time they or we feel compelled to do something, to add something to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, every time we add something to it, we're actually taking something away. We're subtracting from the sufficiency of Jesus. Every time we add something else, we're subtracting from the sufficiency of Jesus. Every time we think the answer to how to get right with God is Jesus plus, we take something from Jesus. We diminish Jesus. And in Galatians, it was Jesus plus circumcision, and Jesus plus kosher food regulations. And Paul says that whatever distracts us from focusing on Jesus needs to be opposed. Whatever builds walls between people and putting them into separate groups needs to be torn down. Whatever we use to supplement Jesus with, to supplement whatever he has already done for us, needs to be cleared away. It's actually not very easy for us to see any of this in our lives, I think. We can't imagine anybody doing or saying something like that. You're never going to hear the weekend host at the end of the service say, okay, Jewish Christians, please exit this way and proceed to Cornerstone Cafe for some kosher lunch. All of you Gentiles, exit that way to the Bedrock Bistro, and we've got pork rinds for you. It's all going to be great. Stay in your lane. It's never going to happen. It just won't. But you may hear this. You may have said this. Jesus plus dress more modestly. Jesus plus don't drink alcohol. Jesus plus vote conservative. Jesus plus get your hair cut. Jesus plus be straight. Jesus plus no tattoos. Jesus plus... You fill in the blank for yourself. Or if we don't say it, or hear it, we might actually feel it. Sometimes it's because Somebody, some some sort of spiritual experience, and you haven't. And you feel left out. You feel second class. And it's Jesus plus whatever that experience was. Sometimes it's because sometimes we just feel awkward around certain people. And we prefer to be more comfortable with people that are just like me. Hard to find people with my accent in this city, but still. But then it becomes Jesus plus people who make me feel good. Or sometimes people have a certain spiritual gift and I don't have it, and it's Jesus plus that gift. Jesus plus. It's a whole lot easier to travel down this path of Jesus plus than many of us think this morning. And for Paul, this won't do. Anything that diminishes Jesus is not the gospel and is not good news. To answer the question of salvation, how do we get right with God? Paul turns to Jesus. Salvation, God's rescue of us from our own brokenness and sinfulness and selfishness, from the end reality of all of death. God's rescue, his salvation is only through the atoning death of Jesus, the one who gave himself for us. That in his defeat of the powers of sin and self and death, his resurrection to new life, we become reconciled and brought home to God. This letter that he writes is full of references to the cross on which Jesus died. It's not by observing Jewish law that gets us anywhere, but it is by faith in the crucified and resurrected Son of God, Jesus. And so Paul will describe in this letter his preaching ministry as placarding or publicly exhibiting Christ crucified. He'll talk about his own core value or primary thing as boasting in the cross alone. And why is the cross the subject of his preaching? Why is it the object of his boasting? What is it that Jesus did? Well, Paul makes these statements in Galatians. He says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Or this, It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see it? Do you get it? Jesus gave himself for me, for you. His death is the remedy for our human sinfulness and brokenness. That's how it works. That's what's going on here. Not rule keeping not other stuff. Our standing with God is only achieved by faith in Jesus, nothing else. Paul will use another word, to be justified. It's a big theological word. It sense, it means to be right or to be vindicated by God. And so he says this, yet we know a person is justified, not by the works of the law, but through the faith of Jesus Christ. And we've come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. And not by doing the works of the law. Because no one will be justified by the works of the law. In other words, none of the other stuff we get up to really counts. None of the rule keeping. Or belonging to the right crowd. Or trying to do the right thing. Or having the correct ethnic or religious background. We don't bring anything else to the table. We have nothing else. Only Jesus. Because Jesus is creating one big family where all these distinctions that we usually observe don't matter anymore. They don't count for much. He says in chapter 3, there's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. The distinctions that we can see, and we know they're there, but they don't matter. They don't count for anything anymore. Paul even takes the time to go back to the story of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, To help these people understand it's not the law or their Jewish identity, but it is faith that counts. He says this in chapter 3, just as Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, so you see, those who believe are the descendants of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would reckon as righteous the Gentiles by faith declared the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the Gentiles shall be blessed in you. For this reason, those who believe are blessed with Abraham who believed. The point is never what you do. The point is what God has done. We don't earn or force our way into heaven or into God's good books by faithful religious practices or belonging to the right group of people. It is God and his love who has reached down in Jesus to rescue each one of us. He picks us up and he holds us up for the entire world to see what it means to follow Jesus. It's not the story of us being great or us getting it right. It's the story of God coming to rescue us. We simply believe and exercise faith. And that's the bulk of chapters 3 and 4. It's all about Jesus. And so we get to this issue of holiness. The question of how can we live a life that honors God? And now it's a significant question. Because if there are no rules and no guidelines, how do we know? How do we know what to do? What decisions should we make? How do we live a life that honors God? Are we free to do whatever we like? Paul has a ready answer in chapter five. He says, "'For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become enslaved to one another.'" For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul isn't put out at all by the lack of rules because he believes the Holy Spirit can do for us what written laws never could. After all, the life that we begin as a follower of Jesus is a life that begins with the Holy Spirit. He says to them, Are you so foolish? Having started with the Spirit, you're now ending up with the flesh. Did you experience so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Well then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law, or by your believing what you heard? More tough talk. Paul Reddy has used a word here that we need to figure out, the word flesh. It shows up all over the place in the Bible, really. It generally means one of two things, the most obvious one. The stuff we're made of. A description of humanity. Jesus would say that when he talked to Nicodemus. What is born of the flesh is flesh. All of us live in a body. Some of us are working harder than others to keep it in shape. But we all live in a body that has needs and demands. We need shelter. We need warmth. We need food and clothing. We need air and water. We need life to have purpose and meaning. But the Bible also uses that word, Paul especially, As a description of our humanity, when he says flesh, it's like the sphere of our existence. It's something very different here. It's a mindset. It is a way of thinking and a way of living that's purely for ourselves. It's not just about having needs or desires. It's about allowing those needs and desires to rule and dominate your life. To become the preoccupation of all we do. To be our focus and our main concern. It's like a description of human desires becoming twisted and egocentric. Or what Billy Greathouse would call the autonomous I. That's what Paul's talking about here. And just in case we're not sure. Well, is that me? I don't know. He offers a few examples in chapter 5. He calls them, if you like, the works of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, things like these. I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not enter the kingdom of God. He talks about our sexual desires going astray, spoiling a gift from God, where we pursue our own agenda and our own gratification with little concern for the care of others. Fulfilling human sexual desires without God's design ever being part of the equation. He talks about religious aspirations that get misdirected, about worshiping false gods. He uses the word idolatry, and we'll think of little statues. I'd rather we thought about the gods of materialism that lure us into a spiral of debt and invite us to come to worship in the grand temple where we can buy more than we ever came for and more than we would ever need or it's turning to other powers to help us cope with life. He uses the word of sorcery, but whether it is powers of darkness or the abuse of substances or the abuse of people, we do it to help us get through another day, but it's filling a human spiritual desire quite apart from God. And he talks about personal relationships that are broken. He has more words here than anything else. This is his big focus. We're so ready to condemn other people about their behavior, but it's here that Paul puts his emphasis. Enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, faction, envy. He's talking about what goes on in church, people. He's talking about us. Whenever my desires, my preferences, my feelings move to the top of the agenda, something has gone wrong because it's not all about me. Paul's point is this, if the focus of my attention is upon my selfish desires, then I cannot live a life that honors God. Because the life that honors God is not about selfishness, but generosity. It's not about grudges, but about forgiveness. It's not about indulgence, but it's about true joy and happiness. But how does that happen? How does that happen when my desires and God's desires so often seem like this? How can I choose well when there are no clear rules? How can we live a life that honors God when this opposition of flesh and spirit seems to come part of everyday experience? The answer is alarmingly simple and amazingly profound. Galatians 5:16, live by the Spirit I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Whenever we choose to live or walk in the power of the Spirit, God's promise is that we do not have to become slaves to our own selfish desires, but really we can live lives that honor Him. And let's be honest, I don't think there's one person in this room or watching at home online. I don't think there's one of us that don't know the tension or feel the challenge of that, the flesh and the Spirit in conflict with one another. But it's not some kind of gunfight at the OK Corral where the outcome's uncertain. Paul's confidence is that if you live by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Look how it plays out. He talks about the death of an old life in verse 24 of chapter 5. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's an amazing statement, really. I mean, I know we use words usually. You know, I could kill for a Coke. I actually could right now. My water bottle's nearly done. I don't mean I'm actually going to kill somebody to get something to drink. It's a bit of an exaggeration. But when Paul talks about crucifixion here, it's more than a metaphor, really. He's talking about our faith identification with Jesus so that what is true of him is also true of us. You see, God's well aware of the problems we face. He's well aware of the destructive choices we make at times. He's well aware of our behaviors that sometimes are suboptimal. He knows about our selfishness. He knows about the depths that we sometimes sink to that we wish we never did. It's why he did something about it. It's why Jesus came. So that our lives could be changed. So that he could do for us the one thing we could never really do for ourselves. So that we might live for God. To receive Jesus into our lives, to accept his offer of forgiveness, to enter into a new relationship with him is to let an old way of living go, to end it, to crucify it. But instead, we play with it and stroke it rather than crucify it. The life change that we long for to live a life that honors God has a decisive beginning that is made possible by Jesus. It is the renunciation of an old way of life with its selfish choices and desires. And it's a deliberate turning towards God so that I can live the life He's inviting me to. And that brings the fruit of a new life. Not everything happens in a moment, Paul's way more realistic than that, yes. You can make a new beginning in a moment. And yes, you can receive Jesus into your life to become your Savior in a moment. And yes, God can forgive you in a single moment. And yes, we can know the infilling of the Holy Spirit living within us and empowering us in a moment. But life change? That takes time. And so Paul writes, if we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit It's an ongoing process where the Holy Spirit's setting the agenda, and the outcome of allowing him to do that, the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. When you think about this fruit, the emphasis here is entirely in the work of the Holy Spirit, not on me trying to cultivate some good qualities in life. If someone has the Holy Spirit within them as a follower of Jesus, fruit will grow. Wherever a follower of Jesus chooses to follow the work of the Spirit, fruit will grow in our lives. It will burst out. People will notice because God's Spirit is working in us, changing our character, changing our attitudes, changing our behaviors, and fruit grows. It's not that it all bypasses your mind or reason. It's not that it requires no intention in your part. It's not just relaxing on some sort of lazy boy or uh, one of those zero-gravity chairs in your backyard and waiting for God to do something. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't remind us to walk by the Spirit. But when we choose to submit our lives to God, God works in amazing ways that actually produce life change, that make us to become more and more like Jesus. I mean, imagine it, that you, I, could actually resemble Jesus. And that's chapters 5 and 6, more or less. It's all about the Holy Spirit transforming me to become more like Jesus. So, what's your response? Left unread? Thanks, that's interesting, not for me. Or is it choosing to follow Jesus, pledging your allegiance to Him today? Is it asking the Holy Spirit to help you truly live a life that honors God, no rules? but him guiding you as we surrender everything to him. What's your response? Did you pray with me? Father, thank you today for Paul's courageous and even difficult words because we know how easy it is for us just to wander through life with a little sense of purpose or direction. And today, there are probably some of us here in this room online who've never really thought much about it. They've never really said yes to Jesus in any meaningful way. But today, we can feel the tug in our heart of your Holy Spirit. And so today, we're praying Lord, I, I need Jesus in my life. I need something to change. I want to know his forgiveness. I want to know something that will break the power of selfishness and sin over my life. I want to know what it means to live a life of all, for, for all eternity, and it starts right here today. I want to be part of what you're doing in our world. And so I'm saying, I need you. I'm sorry for my sin that's broken me and broken others. I need you to forgive me. I need your power to change me. Today I invite Jesus into my life. And for many of us, Father, we recognize that this battle of self and spirit, this battle of flesh and your will, it's so easy for us to choose poorly. And we desperately need your spirit to work in us and lead us and guide us. We don't need a book of rules, but we need you. And so we're praying, Spirit of God, would you come and fill our lives today as we surrender everything we can understand about ourselves to you and say, come and fill us and change us until that fruit becomes real obvious and other people see it in my life. And you make me to become like Jesus. And so today, I, we, choose to surrender our lives to you for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Paul has one final word. It's the very last verse of chapter six that ends his letter. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Amazing grace. It's all about Jesus.